Vancouver Island is an incredibly stunning place, but it's not the first place that comes to mind for a surf trip. The water up there is frigid. I'm talking wear a thick wetsuit all year round type of cold, like five millimeters at least. It's certainly not the kind of place you'd expect to find a thriving professional surfer like Pete DeVries. Most pros spend their seasons in Hawaii, Australia, or even California. But Pete has been surfing this cold water for decades. He grew up in Tofino. It's a town on Vancouver Island that he loves. He still lives there with his wife and son. The chilly temperatures there mean he's often surfing by himself, and honestly, he prefers it that way. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. In 1999, when I was 19, I spent a wild week teaching surfing at one of the first all-woman surf camps with Surf Diva in Tofino. It's a serene place with a surf experience unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. The beaches were beautiful, but they were pretty empty. It's not the easiest place to get to, but that means that Pete gets to spend a lot of time actually catching waves and working on his craft. His dedication and hard work have paid off. Pete is the winner of nine consecutive Canadian Men's Surfing Championships, the 2009 Coldwater Classic title, and he has a coveted spot on the cover of Surfer Magazine. He's also the first professional surfer to be sponsored by the outdoor brand Arcteryx. Pete's love for Coldwater Surfing runs deep. After all, he learned it from his dad. Tell me how you got into surfing in Canada and Tofino. Well, I was fortunate enough to grow up right on the beach. So I had a beach home. Um, My dad and my mom had bought one of the first properties to become available on the beach. And uh, yeah, it was was just a special upbringing, being able to walk out, out my front door onto the beach. And my dad was one of the original surfers in Tofino with a crew of guys. There was maybe a dozen or so guys surfing back in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. So um, I would watch him in front of my house and it was kind of a natural progression that I guess I would get in the water and it looked like he was having fun. So there was never any pressure or, you know, thought of like, you know, you have to do this or you've, you've got to be part of this. But um, it looked like a lot of fun. So I jumped on a surfboard at about seven years old and uh, didn't really do it much, honestly, until I was about 12, 13, when wetsuits were I was going to um, say, there weren't wetsuits for little yeah. kids back then that exactly. were warm enough. So I was wearing a Farmer John with like basically like a suit jacket that would zip up to about the the place where your t-shirt would end. So you were literally getting flushed every time you went under the water. So for those who don't know what that means, like he's wearing a very low cut wetsuit, which meant that like his neck was pretty exposed and water was flushing down his neck into his whole entire body. You want a wetsuit that comes up basically up to your neck. (laughs) Yeah. For, for here, especially you want to keep the water out as much as possible because it's pretty cold, even in, even in the summer, you know, though I went surfing this morning and the water can be freezing as we get some, some upwelling and some different currents. So, um, yeah, you need a wetsuit that actually works for you. So how cold is it right now? 
I think the buoy would be around uh, 52, 53. Oh my God, that's really cold. <laughs> it gets wow. it gets up to 60 or, you know, even 62 to 65 on a really warm day. But I'm still, I, I generally wear a hood just to protect my ears all year round. So your wild idea is to find beautiful remote waves with not many people. That is, that's the dream right there. Your father, you said he grew up surfing in the 70s in Tofino. How did he learn to surf? Well, he didn't grow up surfing. He's actually, um, he came over from the Netherlands. He had me at a very late age. He was 54 when he had me. So he learned how to surf from a few guys here. He was working at um, a, a resort called the Wiccaninish Inn, which is in the, the park now. So it's, it's no longer uh, an inn, but there was a handful of guys that worked there and they met these expats that came up from California that were surfing. And so they saw these guys surfing and they're like, they're living right on the beach. He had a, had a cabin up on the hill over Wick Beach. So he was looking at the water all the time every day. And it's like, this is the perfect, you know, perfect thing to do if you're living right there and working right there. So they ended up um, buying some boards off these guys and finding wetsuits, dive suits actually in, in Vancouver that were just horrible, super stiff and hard to, hard to paddle in, hard to do anything in. But uh, then they, they started surfing. That's really cool that he was like such a pioneer in yeah. surfing because most of the stories about surfers surfing first waves happened in like the 50s or the 60s, but not mm -hmm. necessarily in the 70s or 80s. Yeah, I mean, Canada's definitely uh, a little bit behind in terms like California surfing was obviously around for a long time before that. And, um, you know, there, I think there's definitely a few Americans that moved up to different regions that were surfing a lot here. You know, Vietnam draft dodgers, I've heard, had um, some of the original kind of surf routes on the, the South Island here. And yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. Tell me a little bit more about Tofino. Like Tofino, for those who don't know, is part of Vancouver Island, which is off of Vancouver, British Columbia. That is correct. Okay, you go for it. Tell me. I'm yeah. not going to tell you about your place. Tofino is, um, it's a tiny little town at the end of the road. There's, I'd say 2,500, probably more like 3,500 residents that live here year round now. It kind of primarily was a like logging, fishing village you know, back, back in the day before tourism became such a big thing. Now it has transitioned into a tiny little tourist town that is as busy as ever. And there's a lot of different activities to do here. Um, fishing is huge. Surfing has become probably the most popular thing to do. It's kind of like the surf capital of Canada, but it's totally beautiful, incredible. Like the road ends here and then anything out of Tofino is boat access only. There's a bunch of beautiful beaches and it's, it's really a beautiful place. Describe it to me in terms of like the scenery, pine trees. It's not like a Hawaii beach or a California beach where there's just sand or in Hawaii there's beautiful palm trees. It's totally different. Yeah, we have um, just lush forests everywhere here. It is um, basically trees go down to the water in 
every location that you that you surf around here. If there's not a house or a structure built, it's just beach and you know all kinds of different trees, pine trees, hemlocks, cedars. It's uh, it's quite beautiful. Pete's love of Tofino is obvious when he talks about the town. In fact, when he was a teenager, his mom offered to move the family all the way to San Diego so that Pete could pursue surfing, but he said no way. The thing he loved most about surfing, the cold water, the lush pine trees in the background, and most of all, the lack of thick crowds, that's what Tofino had to offer. Up there, it was just him and the surf. So Pete stayed in Tofino, but he still managed to garner attention from the surfing community. By the time he was 16, Pete was a sponsored athlete who competed all over the world. I'm curious, you started competing when you were young, correct? Yeah, I, I did some contests. Um, you know, I'd always kind of competed in Canada. And then um, I started doing some events in California when I was about 16, 15, 16, and kind of did that for, for a number of years. Awesome. And then how did you transition to being a free surfer and getting paid to just surf remote awesome waves. There's about a handful of guys on the planet. Just got really lucky, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting, you know, uh, for me, my upbringing, I never thought I was going to be a professional surfer. It was never an option. I got sponsored by Hurley when I was 16 and, you know, just got some product and some wetsuits and it was great. I was getting, getting free stuff to go surf and they started uh, wanting to get me out there and stuff. So I started going to California. I met some friends down there that I'd stay with. And after high school, I basically was going to take a year and a half off and go surf around the world. So I went to Indonesia, I went to Hawaii, had a lot of fun, but didn't really know if it was going to be able to go anywhere. So I had some scholarships to go to university through high school. So I was a year and a half was the longest you could take off before they would um, expire. So then I, I put it to Hurley and they said, yeah, we want to start supporting you to surf. So they just uh, kind of wanted me to do what I wanted to do, which, which at that time I wasn't really confident in my abilities enough to be a pro competitive surfer. It wasn't something that I was ready for, but I was doing a few events a year, but I never thought my ability was quite there yet. So I started doing more and more events and I had this one event in Portugal. There was two Brazilian guys in the heat and one Australian and both me and the Aussie guy got really good scores on our first wave. The two Brazilian guys got two waves right away and then they sat on us for the entire rest of the heat just paddled us up and down the point. Like I needed like a three, five and did not catch another wave. And this was the obviously years ago before priority was instituted into contests. And it was very, very different to be a competitive surfer then compared to now. So at that point, I just had this realization that contests were not for me. That was, that was not what I wanted to do. I was also riding for Red Bull at the time and they wanted me to be a certain ranking to work with them. So it was kind of one of these things where I, I was doing more and more events, but my heart was never really in that. So after that event, I, I kind of had some meetings with Hurley and 
you know, they just wanted me to be happy doing what I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to, that they trusted me enough to kind of choose this, this different path. Do you talk about yourself as a lone wolf or happy recluse? So, so what's a happy recluse and a lone wolf mean to you? Uh, I'm, I'm definitely a bit of an introvert. Um, you know, I, I like my space and my quiet time and my personal time. Um, but I'd say I'm generally pretty like happy, happy go lucky. Like it's, it's funny cause I, I sp- I tend to spend a lot of time alone or with my family, but I'm always really happy to chat with people and talk with people. So I'm like a, I'm like an introvert part of the time and then an extrovert maybe other times. I don't know. You really love quiet time. I sure do. Talk to me about it. That's definitely something in my day-to-day life that I always try and enjoy. You know, I love my, my early morning dog walks and get out there early and have as few people as possible around. And I just, that's what I've grown up with. You know, it's, it's something that I love getting out in the bush and camping where there's no service and you're with just a crew of friends and nobody's on their phones and just really enjoying that that time and that the simple things right pete has chosen an unconventional path for a professional surfer he doesn't compete anymore but he does get paid to do what he loves going with a few friends to surf in remote locations He travels locally to find empty beaches and stellar waves. It's not about being judged, getting good scores, or even coming in first. It's just about connecting with nature and doing something that fills him with joy. When we come back, Pete talks about surfing off the beaten track, and he shares his advice for following your wildest ideas. all about the layers, which means I'm all about Arc'teryx. Their Cerium LT hoodie is a lightweight, versatile down hoodie that gives me the warmth I need, but it's still easy to pack for my trips to the mountains. This jacket is great as a mid-layer for snow sports, or as a standalone if you're just in need of a layer to keep you nice and toasty. Bonus, they come in amazing colors, so you can stand out no matter where you're adventuring. It's great to find a brand I can trust to make best-in-class outdoor gear so I can focus on getting out there. Find out more about Arc'teryx and the Cerium LT hoodie at rei.com forward slash B forward slash Arc'teryx. That's rei.com forward slash B forward slash A-R-C-T-E-R-Y-X. In the same pioneering spirit of our podcast, Teva is all about bringing wild ideas to life. An innovator in the sport sandal category, Teva has launched a brand new slip-on that delivers the same foot-hugging comfort as the original icon. Enter the Re-Ember, a next-generation camp shoe. This quilted slip-on offers all-terrain versatility with a durable rubber sole and water-resistant finish. But the best part? The Re-Ember is reimagined with recycled materials including a 100% recycled adventure-ready ripstop upper inspired by classic outdoor gear. So whether you're running around town, kicking back at the campground, or curled up on the couch, this cozy companion ensures toasty heat for tired feet. Go ahead, slip on, and bliss out. Discover Teva's Re-Ember collection this fall 
with select colors available at your local REI and at REI.com. Pete is passionate about surfing in clean, cold waters. He often camps on rocky beaches beneath forests of evergreen trees. The scenery is breathtaking. But getting to these locations is not easy. It can mean flying on small planes or taking boats out to deserted coves. That sense of discovery, though, that's what makes this kind of surfing so adventurous and special. Do you have a story about going to a remote place and what that took and then how you felt when you got there? The most difficult but rewarding trip I've ever done, I think, is um, probably this trip that I did with Chris Burkhardt, Ben Wieland, uh, Josh Molkoy, and Alex Gray. We went to the Aleutian Islands. We basically had to pack all our gear, food, everything for our, I think we were there for about 12 or 13 days. So, we so I'm going to pe- stop you for two seconds. So for those who don't know, Chris Burkhardt has been on the podcast. He's a famous photographer who shoots cold water. Alex Gray is a surfer who used to be on the body glove team when I was there. And then these other guys are also just really good surfers, but they all happen to charge in, I would say, untraditional conditions like you. Yeah. So we, um, we went out to these islands and basically they're super remote, like the landing strip where you land a tiny six seater plane. We basically had to charter this plane and stuff it full of all our gear, like food, surfboards, everything. We were like so stuffed to the brim. Um, and you land on a gravel landing strip. And as you land, there's a plane that has crashed just lying on the side of the oh, landing no. strip. And these islands are just, they're in the middle of nowhere. So there's there's so many different conditions that happen so quickly up there. The wind changes three to four times a day and it gusts from one direction to the next. So you can really see how pilots would have to be at the top of the level to, uh, to last a while up there. It's just such a crazy place to be. The storms come in so fast and so intense. There's no trees on these islands. So there's nothing really to dampen the winds and they just howl over everything. And that's north, right? Like off of Alaska? Yeah, it's north. Uh, It's Alaska. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we show up at this this island and it's just the landscape and the geography is great for surfing. There's a lot of good, um, good looking reefs that can create good slabs. But in order to get to these waves, you have to use a quad bike. There's no roads on the island. So you're either walking a very long distance or you strap your boards to the back of a quad and rip down these mud tracks. And it was just uh, such a cool experience, but probably the hardest work I've ever had to do day in and day out to go check the waves. So you're like, you're going for an hour in one direction to go check a spot. And obviously going to a place like that, you're kind of flying blind. You don't really know what you're looking for or what the conditions are going to be like. So you just got to go check it and check it. And we actually got really fun waves the first couple days at these, these littler slabs. And then, um, tell people what a slab is first. 
A slab is a hollow wave that breaks over a very shallow reef. So you need the right, right type of reef. And generally they need um, specific conditions like the right swell direction, the right wind direction for it all to align. But generally they're breaking over anywhere from one foot to three feet of water. So they come in out of deep water, hit the reef really hard and then barrel really round. So they're uh, incredibly difficult waves to surf. You have to be at a very high level just even to get to your feet and make the wave. And um, the consequences are very high when you fall in the wrong spot at these waves because you basically just go straight onto the reef and you can really hurt yourself if you if you make a mistake at these waves. That's a good description. Thank you. Yeah. But these like slabs are the most exhilarating type of wave for me. Um, and that's in a sense where you get that that thrill, then that's where I get my thrill out of surfing. We were checking out this other zone while the swell was flat. And I saw this little, little piece of reef that looked like it had good shape. The waves were about knee high, so you couldn't really tell, but I was like, we have to go back on, on the next swell, this, this swell that was coming for the end of the trip. And, um, we ended up finding this great right slab that was world-class wave and super, super fun. And Alex was going absolutely nuts out there, getting crazy barrels. It was, it was quite, it was maybe the, the best wave I've ever found that was kind of unknown before a surf trip. For those who don't know, barrel is when you're inside the wave, the wave is breaking over your head and it is hard to do. Pete is excellent at doing it when he's in those situations. When has been an experience where everything has gone wrong on a trip? And I know you've had these because I know every adventure has experienced when it all goes haywire. Have you, have you had a moment where you've been on a trip and just like everything is going wrong? Yeah. I mean, knock on wood, haven't had any like major catastrophes. Uh, one that comes to mind is, um, this slab that we surf north of here. It's about a two and a half hour boat ride. Really kind of long, long trip to get there. So we're up at the slab and the conditions were, were beautiful. Actually, there were some really nice waves coming and I took off deep on this wave. And sometimes your board won't grab as you're wanting to bottom turn into the barrel when you're behind it. And I just couldn't get my rail engaged in the water. So I got too low and Basically, the lip of the wave came straight down into my head and crushed me onto my board. Oh. And uh, yeah, it can be super gnarly because you can really hurt your actually like your lower legs. You can do your knees when that happens or ankles. Um, this time I tweaked my neck so bad. Um, my arm felt like I had broken it. It was completely numb. So I one armed it into the, into the reef and was standing on the reef. And I was, my arm was like hanging there. I thought my arm was broken and I'd actually pinched, uh, found out I'd pinched something in my neck and that was causing the reverberated pain down my arm. Um, but that was like three waves into a, a day trip up there. So two and a half hour boat ride. And then in pain and had to make it home in the, in my buddy's boat on the, after that. So 
it just it's just one of those things you gotta you gotta pay to play right it's part of uh part of taking those those risks is uh you get the rewards but also sometimes you get the pain that goes with it Pete's expeditions can be dangerous, but they're worth the risk. The exhilaration and sense of adventure in discovering these waves has always brought him joy. Pete has built his unconventional career on pursuing what makes him happy. It hasn't been easy, but he's redefining what it means to be a professional athlete. Any advice to people who want to make a living following their passion? Yeah. I mean, everything that is worth doing is going to be a challenge. You know, it's the, the key is to consistently put in the work in order to get to where you want to go. You can't just really want to do something. You have to put in the hours and the effort and whatever that is you want to do, you really have to put in the time. And that's, that's something that I don't know, might be missing in the, in this day and age is, is if you want to do something, you really have to put in that time and focus day in, day out. I think that's the most important thing. It's like, I, I feel like my surfing, for example, after I stopped competing, I felt like I started working harder at my surfing in order to kind of justify what I was able to do. And when the waves were crappy and I was over it, I'd be like, okay, you got to put in work today. You've got to go to work. And that was, that was my justification. You're surfing for an hour and a half in absolute garbage that nobody wants to surf in because you're going to work. And, um, it's just as simple of putting that in your mind that you've got to work day in and day out at something. If you want to make it there. I've been doing all the scientific research on barrels and why they make you feel so different and why certain waves make you feel so different. Have you ever felt different or changed after a surf trip or after a wave? I wouldn't say I feel different. Fulfilled would be the best description for, for me. Um, there's something about a barrel. I don't know what it is, but it's been, it's been like a few months for me since I've gotten barreled. And it's just like, it's starting to, starting to bug me. I think it's like, you know, it's something that I think as a surfer, we just crave. And once you, once you get a barrel, you just want another one and another one and another one. It's like this insatiable thing that you cannot get enough of, especially when it happens like sparingly, which I'd say surfing here, we don't have a lot of barreling waves. We've got really good waves when they're good. And the rest of the time we're surfing very average waves. So it's just something that I'm always craving and looking forward to. I think it has something to do with like the waterfall effect. You know, ancient civilizations used to send people down to waterfalls to be healed because the closest thing I can describe to a barrel is like being underneath a waterfall and sitting in it and feeling that energy. And I've only been like barely barreled. I've been like covered up in Indonesia. That was it. But I believe that like there is something about being enveloped in water. It feels amazing and your view is amazing and there's no way to be closer to nature than feeling that. Oh, it's so true. I think for me, it's like that feeling of being really deep behind a peak 
when you know the only option to make it is to get barreled and you don't know if you're going to make the drop or not, that's the most exciting thing in surfing for me. Like basically getting to your feet, tippy towing, just making it under the lip and then getting that, that moment of like relaxation and the view of the barrel. That's like the, the best thing in surfing, but you know, you're like hearts in your throat when you're dropping in, you're like, Oh, I'm either going to get smashed into the reef or I'm coming out of this thing, standing straight up. That's, that's the best for me. I think that's a good metaphor for pursuing your wild ideas though. Like a wild idea isn't a direct path and it's not guaranteed. You might get the way of your life. You might get absolutely worked, but you won't know until you go. Exactly. What's a wild idea mean to you? I think it, I mean, I think a wild idea can just mean putting yourself out there, getting out of your comfort zone. And for me, that is going to a place that I've never been that there's not much information on and trying to figure out that puzzle as you, as you get there. That's a real surf trip to me. And that's, that's a wild surf trip to me. Catching the perfect wave isn't Pete's only goal. It's preparing himself for the cold water. It's studying the tides and landscapes and discovering untouched territories. Pete followed his internal compass to make it as a pro surfer. He knew what he loved about surfing and he never lost sight of what he loves. Thank you so much to Pete DeVries for coming on the show. It was especially fun to catch up with you on all the shenanigans that went down in Tofino back in 1999. You also made me actually want to get in some cold water surf. I've been pretty spoiled down here by the 70 degree water in San Diego. You can find Arcteric's recent video with Pete linked in our show notes. You can also follow Pete online and see some really incredible photos and videos of him surfing on Instagram at Pete DeVries. That's P-E-T-E-D-E-V-R-I-E-S. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow the show, when you rate it, and when you review it wherever you listen. We read every single one of your reviews. They mean a lot. Please write one. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.